Across the Margin Podcast. thing I learned on Chalpamador was that when a person dies, he only appears to die. He's still very much alive in the past, so it is very silly for people to cry at his funeral. All moments, past, present, and future, always have existed, always will exist. The Chalpamadorians can look at the different moments just the way we can look at a stretch of the Rocky Mountains, for instance. They can see how permanent all the moments are. And they can look at any moment that intersects them. It is just an illusion we have here on Earth that one moment follows another, like beads on a string, and that once a moment is gone, it is gone forever. When a Trophimadorian sees a corpse, all he thinks is that the dead person is in bad condition in that particular moment, but that the same person is just fine in plenty of other moments. Now, when I myself hear that somebody is dead, I simply shrug and say what the Trophimadorians say about dead people, which is, so it goes. Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes, and deeper into the stories. Uh, I am Michael Shields, and as always, I have with me Chris Thompson. What? There's no mic drop? (laughs) I got you. Hold on. Okay. So, uh... Yeah, well, like last time we needed the mic job because we were, what we were doing on the first podcast was, it was our primer. It was, it was basically across the margin, the, the manifesto. Right, it was our introduction. Yeah, like, so who was, are we? Yeah, so I was preaching. So we I had needed, a lot to say then. Yeah, and I needed that like, boom, like this, is, you know. So I tried to think of like, where do I get a mic drop sound? And, and the only thing that came to mind was, in my mind, the most famous mic drop of all time was... The sexual chocolate scene from Coming to America. Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Have, have, you, have you seen the the, um, the new Action Bronson uh, video? Of course Baby, I have. Baby Blue? Yeah. That, uh, I love how they, how they bring that in. But um, it, anyways, back to the matter at hand. What we're doing today is the ABCDs of science fiction. Um, at Across the Margin, we, uh, we remain in awe of the stars. Weary yet excited about technology and unsure but curious about the future. We uh, we're kind of here to out ourselves as nerds in this second podcast. We love science fiction. We want to talk about it a little bit. So the ABCD. Do you want to explain a little bit what the ABCD? Yeah, is I, mean, like? I mean, I'll settle up up a little bit. You know, so I mean, I'd love to talk about the chronology of some of the greats that sort of got us. 
to where we With, are today. In science fiction literature. Yeah, in science fiction, fantasy, you know, yeah. dystopian literature, some speculative fiction. I mean, there's a, it's a broad brush you paint with, but, you know, there's some, some really well-known authors in there who you can sort of talk about who are the foundations, the building blocks for sort of where a lot of these genres are today, you know? And, you know, I, I, it, in one sense, there's a bit of an alphabet to it, you know, at least in the beginning, you know? And, you know, for instance, we have Isaac Isimov, which you know, is the A. Leading off with A. And then we had the legendary storyteller Ray Bradbury. Your guys. You know, yes. you know, someone who's very near dear to my heart who we'll call the B. Uh-huh. You know, we have Arthur C. Clarke who gave us, you know, such great stories as 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was definitely part of that, yeah. Randavos with Rama, Earthlight. Mm-hmm. Just name a few of his, you know, his, his stories, his, his books. Um, you know, we'll give him the letter C, you yeah. know, and then and there's this <laughs> rapid fire succession of literary greats, you know, Philip K. Dick. Who Which gave us so many, so many fantastic tales? Made the movies, you know, Minority Report, you know, all these uh, Blade Runner, you know. Yes. What, um, what was Blade Runner uh, called? For uh, him? Blade Runner was actually based do on. Do androids sh- dream of sleep? Uh, yes. Do androids dream of electronic sheep? Sheep. Which is a very <laughs> valid question, you know. Well, uh, I hate saying this, but I have never read that. You haven't. Should we stop the podcast right now? I, I, I think we should. I think we should drop the microphone again. Yeah, and then we should pick Wait, it up. Hold up. Yeah, yeah. It's. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that, but that's that's the real deal. That's uh, all right, Mike. I still love you. And um, my intro that I was I was reading when we, when we came in that is. We go straight to the V. That was Kurt Vonnegut from Slaughterhouse Five. Of course, how could you not talk that about him? That is, it's the the god to me. That is the man. So, but Chris uh, is kind of our resident sci-fi expert, if I might call you that. You might. Yeah, I'll <laughs> yeah. allow it. And you'll, you know, anyone who's been to Across the Margin has seen him write about space exploration and also, you know, write about uh, sci-fi in a lot of different ways. So, I was. I'd, I'd like to ask you right now, what, um, what is it about science fiction that appeals to you? You know, for me, I, I encountered it at an early age, you know, and I, I think that I benefited from that because it just allowed my imagination you, you to soar. You told me that your, your, your dad was the one who got you right, into it. Right, right. I mean, just for me, as I was growing up, he always had this bookshelf in his bedroom and it was just filled with all these books and not until I got like a little bit older you, you would rate it like some people rate their parents playboys exactly like or, or, or their liquor it. cabinet yes, you know yeah. you know but back in my formative years when I was younger you know I, I was just soaking up the written word like a sponge and you know one day I just started pulling down those books you know up on my tiptoes getting yeah. to the top shelf yeah. and I'd pull down Ray Bradbury and it was like this old yellowed book from the 70s and it smelled this amazing evocative smell you know I just like I would just open it up and I start reading these stories and I would just disappear into them and like you know So what what you're saying is is something that really got you about science fiction was the escapism Yeah like you're oh, just, you're such a, a huge level I mean somewhere completely else it, it took my mind to places I could never imagine going places that my education or my interaction with people or my lifestyle weren't taking me it was just like this place where I would just pull the blanket up over my head and turn the flashlight on late at night and just <laughs> Um, you would get really weird. I would get really <laughs> weird with these weird. stories, and I would just devour the written word, you know, yeah. until I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore, and I would yeah. just fall asleep yeah. to, like, you know, Like a Bradbury. Yeah, and I'd wake up with the flashlight battery dead and the book, like, on my chest, and, you know, and just, like, wake up and have these dreams, <laughs> these fantastical dreams of the stories that I read about, you know? So, I mean, like, that's what gets me. 
that's what that's what always does it for me. And when I read these stories nowadays, I'm taken back to those places. You know, I just I have this nostalgia for it. You know. So uh, I mean, we we do have to start with Asimov. I mean, it's right. it's is isn't he? I'm asking, like, he's considered the, the godfather I mean, in yeah. a lot of ways. Like, of on, on, on a lot of ways, he's, like, one of the prominent Golden Age authors, you know? Not only does he benefit from having his last name being A, yeah. but he also <laughs> benefits from the fact that he wrote a lot of the sort of foundational stories that had to do with, like, establishing this genre. Did you, did you perhaps, I'm going away from Asma uh, way too fast, but we'll come back uh, did you see Go and Claire at all on HBO? The no, I, I wasn't able to um, catch that. So, have you read any L. Ron Hubbard? Have I, you? I, I, I've, I've read a little bit of but, Ron you know, I'm, Hubbard. I'm not speaking of the, you know... The, the Scientology. Yeah. The, 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 Slant. The, yeah. Uh, he is in Guinness for having the most... Uh, he's the most published author right. of all time. And a lot right. of that has to do... I, I mean, it's like, like he... 10, it's like 10... You know, 1,084 books or something. He has it's this crazy. prolific, fantastical he's side of him where he just, just like, writes yeah. about, like, science fiction. I mean, he has these grand ideas. Um, in one aspect, he founded the religion that's based loosely on it, you know? Yeah. So it's taken with a grain of salt, but at, he is also a, a, an author, you know? And he, he writes a lot of science yeah, it, stories that are... And, and a lot of people could say that he, you know, yeah. he, he made up something that... Speaks to a lot of people. Uh, in, right. In there, there's a very famous, terrible movie starring John Travolta. Yes. You know, that's probably one of the worst that, movies that out battle, there. Battlefield Earth. Battlefield Earth, yeah, yes, I yes. It, 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 I don't know many people who have watched it yeah. or sat through the whole thing, but if you have, God bless you. Yeah, you know? yeah, good for you. Good for you, yeah. Um, so Asimov, he is, he's most known for the Foundation trilogy. I've read, I've read the first book. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's a fantastic trilogy. I, I revisit it every other, every couple of years. I mean, like, they're one of the, my father had, had the whole trilogy and I read it and it was just amazing. It just, he, he had this amazing ability to sort of just like weave this tale that just uh, spanned generations and it spanned uh, planets and it just, he and built I, these I, worlds that were amazing. From, from what I remember from reading it, I, like he was, you know, something that we'll get to with Vonnegut and a lot, I mean, basically all these guys, is the social commentary within it. Um, I remember one line, uh, it's, 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 it's very simple, but uh, violence came to re- retort, right. is the refuge of the incompetent. Like, right. they, there's just the, these nuggets of knowledge within, like, his sci-fi yeah. story that, like, were just so captivating. And I mean, I mean, he created this, this whole society that was purely based on math, almost like a Vulcan society. I mean, yeah. it's just so logical. And this society is so good at math, they can actually plan the future. Yeah. And they're called the foundation. And they, they, they are setting the foundation for this new future. But all these sort of like random events they can't control keep screwing stuff up. And this book is sort of just all about mm-hmm. like trying to just, you know, deal with that aspect, you he know? Was, I mean, he was a big part of the... the, the humanist movement that like right and I actually think Kurt I'm gonna keep bringing it back to Vonnegut that's I, fine it, it should be um, I think he took over after him as the president of the AHA which is the American Humanist Association right. like right. these guys I mean, he was also a biochemist too yeah. you know and a professor you know so but they have no these they, but these guys were were speaking on things that mattered to the core of what it means to be human right. and, and right. they're doing it within these tales that are just like that you're in the bedroom you know getting your 
you're off in Mars talking about things, but they're right. talking about what's happening to us. Right. He, wrote, he, 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 he talked about the human condition a lot through science yeah. fiction, you know, and that allowed it to be very approachable to mainstream, you know? Um, and I think that's a reason why he's widely considered one of, like, the founders of, like, the big the, three science fiction writers. The big three, writers, Asimov, you know? Clark, and um, Robert... Um, Robert Heinlein. Heinlein, yeah, yes. Right, yeah, yeah. right. Um, you know, but the the genre is bigger than him when you talk about the foundation. Yeah. But there's a core, and I, I will I would very easily group him into that because of the fact that he's just responsible always, for so uh, much it, of his beginnings. It's uh, when I when I came upon the term the big three, I was I would I would just assume that Bradbury to move on to the bees, like yeah, he, uh, that he would be a part of that, right? Like right. he's so influential. To you, of course, but right. like to like anyone right. who loves science. I mean, I, I, I think for me, he's uh, influential, but maybe that's just my own personal yeah. uh, prejudices, you know? And I, I just, I love Bradbury just for the fact that he's just such, his, his stories are so enchanting, and they don't just only exist in science fiction, they exist in fantasy, and they exist in like these environments that are difficult to describe. I mean, like, I can just get lost in his storytelling. I mean, Fahrenheit 451 is is one of the most affecting novels I've ever read, whether it's, you know, uh, that point... Do you remember the woman who... Because they're burning books. Right. Like, the, 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 he's... It's he's, the temperature at which books burn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and he <clears throat> is, what, the firefighter who is... Whatever he's burning them, but like, right. there's that woman at that one point who she loves her book so much that she won't let him. But she goes. She's willing in, to burn for that. She's willing to burn in her right. place, and like right. that is something that like blew my mind when right. I first. I mean, you're talking about Guy Montag. Yeah. And Guy Montag is God, a firefighter. Name for a second. Like, yeah. like, but he's a firefighter yeah. in the non-traditional sense. Yeah. He doesn't put out fires. He no. starts fires. I love that. I always love that they say firefighter when they're talking about. It's a, it's amazing. It's amazing. Like, I mean, like, so. But the story is so eloquent because when it ends, it takes place in this sort of period of time where war is still a prolific part of society. And all these bombs are dropping. In the final scene, Guy Montag is walking down this sort of, like, this retreat of people flying out of the cities. And he meets people who, like, I'm Hamlet. I'm, you know, like, like, I'm Shakespeare's Hamlet, you know, like, 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 I'm the Odyssey, like... I yeah. have this book memorized in my brain. It may not exist <laughs> anymore, but I'm I'm a living guy too. Yeah. Between being the the guy who was 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 right. was was burning all these books to right. realizing the importance right. of of that. You know you know what science fiction really does is um, that's been amazing. Is it's 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 been a crystal ball. It's it's shown us like there's these things that I remember in Fahrenheit 451 where um, they're called seashells. Do you know right. what I'm talking about? They, right. they were like these earbuds that distracted people. Right. And, I mean, can you think of the relevance now? Of course not. Of like the, 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 I the mean, me and that, you ride the subway all the time and yeah, just everyone's the, consumed with their cell phones and their, and the, and me, their, it, their yeah, earbuds. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's uh, the, the things that are distracting us from what really matters. I mean, it goes They've beyond that. have been talking about this for, for yeah. six... 75 yeah. years now. Like, I, I love the predictive nature of science fiction. Yeah. I feel That's like, what I was... The, like, yes, like even in four, Fahrenheit 41, I mean, his, his wife lives in this room and it's just all television walls. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like, all... F- I mean, that technology exists now. I think of that black, you know? uh, that black mirror. Where right, exactly. Like, where he right. has to sit in the room and watch exactly. like whatever porn. I mean, like, like it, the, I mean, flat screen TVs exist now. I mean, you, you yeah. projection television, you can cover a wall. I mean, even yeah, with, like... It, um, I don't know if it was Highland or who, but like 
one of them created like basically satellite technology. Like it was his idea to have satellites. There is a wealth of science fiction and f- fantasy authors who have put forth ideas that have been realized that have come in our society, forefront. have come to pr- fruition. Yeah. And a lot of people will say that they are the technological dreamers and the driver of some of our technological futures. And I love the genre for that aspect because they can dream it up Imagine and they can create what's worlds. Imagine now with some of the current ones when what the things are dreaming up that uh, it's uh, some daunting and we don't yeah. want to right. deal with because it's very pessimistic. A, a, so, a lot of the science fiction now, the modern science fiction, benefits from the technology that exists now. And they take it even further. Yeah, so saying, it's almost like going? self-fulfilling. Where it keeps building go? on itself. Like, you know, like a lot of the popular movies now have like androids and robots and like stuff existing in the cloud and like three-dimensional like alternate reality stuff. That stuff all exists because of the simple fact that, you know, like modern society has embraced it and now they're taking it even farther. So, I mean, yeah. like, you know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I love it. Modern fiction, not, modern science fiction is just as engaging as stuff let in me, the um, age. Let me go ahead and quote you. Because um, sure. just to finish off Bradbury, um, Chris wrote an article after Bradbury passed, and um, he wrote, Your fear of growing old and fear of death cannot distract you. It cannot consume and own you. You must accept your mortality. Ray taught me that knowledge is a right of rite of passage. Meeting and knowing death so that it is removed from your subconscious is freeing, allowing people to get on with the real business of life, which is living. Right. It's... Um, one of the things I love about science fiction writing or film, whatever, is, is it, it, you know, it, it, it can be very pessimistic, this post-apocalyptic world that, that, that we watch and read about. But it's also, there's, there's something about saying, yes, that, that, that is possible. That's right. bu- it's fucked up and that, that's terrible. But, I, I, you know... It shouldn't stop us from trying to do anything about it. Of course, we should always try to, you know, make the world a better place, make it more sustainable. But there's something that 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 makes you live better, knowing that you, you know what, what can you, what can you do almost. Right. Like it's, I, I feel like science fiction and a lot of these genres, dystopian fiction, speculative fiction, they kind of make you. Maybe for me, it's my opinion, but I feel like they they kind of ground you more in the present because. You're analyzing That's, the future yes. based on where you are <laughs> Way right now. Way to clean up what you know? I was trying to say. You know, and, and, and like yeah. when, when you talk about the fact that um, Ray Bradbury taught me to not be afraid of death. I mean, he taught me that a lot because a lot of his stories dealt with those themes, and a lot of his stories made me feel like it's okay the yeah. natural rhythms of life and yes. the cycles because yes. you know what, M- maybe death is just like one aspect of life, you know, and maybe oh, there's yeah, a greater supernatural is. force that we don't understand. And he wrote a lot about that. And when I was young and impressionable, yeah. and I was reading his stories, it really <laughs> helped me to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean like I, I can. There's I mean, something definitely alleviating. I mean, when you talk about childhood anxiety, childhood apprehension, understanding your place in the world, being unsure with the big questions, and then you're reading somebody's stories like Ray Bradbury's who are sort of just like uh, setting it forth in a way that is digestible and sort of is engageable and makes sense and make you feel okay with it. I mean, it's a good place to be. And and I I really feel feel very privileged to the fact that my father had those books and I was able to read them because... I, I, I can't imagine not having them now 
You in my wouldn't life. be the man. You I are. wouldn't be the man that I am sure. now. You know, I I, I agree. And uh, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and and pull it back to Kurt. Um, like his ability to take like the most malignant of society's ills and 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 just drag them into the light, like perfectly mocking their absurdity. Like, not only to me did this help identify like the the vital concerns that you know are affecting all of us, but um, it it. it it, it just, I guess the best thing he did was combat these type of, this type of craziness with laughter. Yeah, I know. He, he, I mean, he, he, he was he, a great satire humorist. The like, best in my I mind. Mean, the best. He would write like satire, gallows humor, and feed it into science fiction. Laughter was would... his best, fav- most favorite response to the dark side. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, that's, it's kind of describing like the way I view things right. and he's also a, he's a humanist too he, I mean he's yes. trying to describe the human condition in a satirical way but also with a science fiction slant because that's how he knows how to express himself uh-huh. and and I can tell you reading Kurt Vonnegut it's like I'm listening to my inner monologue sometimes yeah. I mean it's it's amazing how much he gets me and I get him I mean I mean it's it's same thing it's scary here I mean we could do a yeah. whole Whole podcast and, and we can do a whole podcast in this Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury for God's sake, yes. you know, like. But um, but today we have a lot to get to today. We do, and, we do. Let's not get bogged down. And and we know that we just touched the base on some of the gods of science fiction literature. Um, and luckily, soon after we're, we're about to do an interview with an author that we love, a current science fiction author that we really love. Um, but after that, uh, we have uh, Chris. Has writ, wrote, <laughs> wrote, written, written uh, a science, a short science fiction story for. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so, you know, uh, after I, our I, interview, uh, I, I I get kind of weary of using the term science fiction because I feel like it's more of like uh, Twilight Zone meets the Outer Limits. Are you talking about your story? What's it yeah, called? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so my my story is called The Middle Drawer. Sure, and. Uh, you know, just to set it up, it takes place in just an ordinary office with a character who's just sort of just beaten down by the monotony of his everyday work life, and he's being made to stay late um, at the office when everybody else has left for the holiday break. He's kind of wishing he's joined up with his office mates at the bar, you know, talking to girls, you know, carrying on, and he's stuck here just photocopying his reports, and just something really unique and fantastical happens to him that you and wouldn't then, normally expect. And we'll and leave it at that. that has the story to, goes from that, there, my that friend. Is, you know? that, is, that is your teaser. And that That's is my teaser. Something to uh, wait for. But now um, we have to talk to someone real quick. He's coming in right now, so uh, you're going to enjoy this, guys. We are here today with Rajan Khanna, a science fiction fantasy author. Um, he's the author of the novel Fallen Sky, an adventure story set in a post-apocalyptic future, rife with airships, beer, Vikings, a uh, deadly virus that causes humans to become bloodthirsty animals, and these fantastic airborne settlements that are vying for survival above the tortured lands. Uh, Rajan's short fiction has appeared in Light Speed magazine, Beneath Ceaseless, Ceaseless Skies, Shimmer, and several anthologies, and he's here today to mix it up with us as we talk dystopian futures, apocalyptic landscapes, and, and anything whatever, else that falls in between. Be. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So, so welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, guys. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it's good to have and, you. And as we were telling you, you're our first guest. So, yes. the, uh, I am so honored. Yes, <laughs> it's no, good the to have you. Is on ours, so. 
it's it'll be part of history at some point. But um, we love the book. Paul Thank Sky you. is uh, Thank you very much. We read it late last year, and um, and 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 it's a hell of a debut. And uh, how's it going? How's it being received? Is it? I think well. I mean, yeah. everything that I hear back. I mean, it's it's you know, there's the the. I guess the commercial thing, which right. my publishers are happy, so I'm happy. Right, sure. um, and you know, it's really nice to get fan mail, or, or you know, you know, sometimes on Facebook I'll get a message of somebody saying like, "I really liked it. I have these questions," and it's yeah. you know, some That's of the why times, you're here, right? We really like it, and we have but these questions. Th- some of the questions are like, "Oh yeah, you know, that's a really good question," and, oh, yeah. and you know, it, it's kind of something that deserves going into, um, right. but. But yeah, I mean, I've been happy with the feedback that I've been getting, and uh, you know, I, I I'm one of those write, writers tend to be, I would say, sensitive people to you know, like putting their work out there, and I gotta be brave. There's a party that's definitely yeah, brave. and I think there are some people who who just need to kind of go with that, like this is awesome, and people are gonna come around to it, or you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm kind of one Americans. of those people who's like, oh my god, this is gonna crack the moment <laughs> I put it out there. So. No. So, you know, every Speaking time somebody language, comes man. back and says, oh, you know, I really, I, I, I enjoy, I couldn't put it down or whatever, I'm, like, happy. Um, it is, and, it's, it's hard to put down. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, like, there's, like, there's, like, this complex simplicity to it that just, it's kind of no frills, you don't, you know, overindulge at times, and it just barrels ahead with, like, a kind of head of steam. Is that something you were striving for? Or? Yeah, you know, so... The, the the genesis of the whole novel came from a short story that I wrote when I was at the Clarion West Writers Workshop that okay. was back in 2008. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, I spent another... I spent months after that kind of working on the story because I... I, what, I what, what segment of the story was the short story? The short story was like the prequel, right? Right. It set up Ben meeting Miranda. Yes. And it set up, you know... Ben's him, the him, main character. Yeah, yeah ben, ben being the main character, the pilot of the airship. Mm-hmm and Miranda being the scientist. So it, it kind of set up, you know, what he'd been doing and, you know, having this opportunity presented toward him, like, come work with us to, to, to change the world. So, so that, I guess, for people who are listening, um, the, there's this virus which basically devolves people into animalistic kind of creatures. And feral. feral, called ferals, yeah. And Miranda is a scientist who's trying to find a cure, and Ben is this kind of jaded airship captain. Who is um? Who, what's the influence there? He's got a little little Han Solo. Little There's a little, definitely Han Solo. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I that, that's that's definitely uh, a huge I mean, influence. On, yeah. um, but so you know that that story showed. You know, which I, I think we'll probably see the light at some point in time, but it showed how he met her and how he decided that this was something he wanted to get involved mm-hmm. with. So where the novel picks up, obviously they've been together for a while, but he's still struggling with this idea. Um, and so, but but the, the when I sat down to write the novel, the first thing, like, I, could, I couldn't get it to work. And... That's because the, so the short story was in third person and it was this kind of removed sense and I was like God, this is so, I don't feel it I don't feel it and it wasn't until I did it first person present uh, tense that like kind of voice place, yeah. that I was like oh right and then I knew at that moment that it was just going to be like it was going to be simple because Ben's not going to like talk about you know huge lavish descriptions yeah. of like what room he's in he's right. going to be thinking about you know 
Where's the food? You know, what, what you know, something about his airship. Where's uh, the beer? Yeah, or, or, or you know, and and do I need to to use my ammunition or whatever whatever it is? And and I kind of, I guess I I mean it was deliberate in, in the sense of wanting to keep it like moving and moving and moving right. and moving and but having it was also like also based on what the main character is going to be thinking and feeling and right. Ben, Ben's right. not the yeah, right. the, yeah. the overly descriptive type yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I mean you know I know some people probably are it, it, the voice might not work for them because they're used to you know having these in-depth kind of descriptions and right. things but like there were times that I wanted to say stuff right. that I was like You're he like, just wouldn't he's it. not going to think right. that exactly. you know yeah. and so I can't really do that and there, right. there's information even that I, I, I went back and forth with my editor and I was like is there a way we, you know, like I want to slip this in but there's no way I can do that without it sounding like I'm slipping it in right. you know because right. he would never really right. stop and be like hmm blah 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 but you did at points through other characters you got to get a little deep the, you know Rabbi Cohen he was talking you know about faith and you know reasons why you know there's there's hope in the world and so the, you got to use his voice to yeah. sort of yeah. speak a little and more I mean, eloquently that, that's yeah. all you can really do right. I suppose yeah. right. in those situations is right. have him be faced with things but like you know there are times that I wish I could have taken him out and be like let these two other people yeah. have a discussion yeah. but it just you know couldn't happen and there was the, the early drafts that I sent to my editor you know he was like you know Ben's kind of being sidelined in some right. of these things and he's the main character so we need to have him be doing stuff and I was like that that's fair but right. it, it there's a sacrifice that comes along right. with that right right um, but but yeah I mean the 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 one thing I did want to have happen was that you know I I did I wanted the intensity to just kind of keep keep going throughout right. the whole thing it definitely it, it didn't stop it didn't it definitely um, and uh, yeah and so so almost I, to the point where I wanted to know more about you know luckily you're moving out but you know what's the place that means paradise um, Bahala. No, oh, no Tam- Tamonja. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I could have spent yeah. a lot right. of time there. That's very and intriguing colony, yeah. So I'm working on a sequel right now, mm-hmm. and, you know, as I'm doing it, I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, you know, like, I, I barely explored this this whole yeah. place. Like, people yeah. probably don't know what it looks like. Right. Um, because, you know, it kind of dips in and then jumps yeah. out again. But, like, so, so that is something I, I am trying to, to, to deal with more in, in the future. Um, you know, and I think that I've... I've you know, I'm considering the idea of doing maybe a few length short stories that are that are related to it as well, but it you know, maybe in a different voice right. as well, right. which helps. Yeah. But um but yeah, it's you know, it's sad because obviously I see in my head a lot more than ever makes it onto the of page. Course. And it's like, Oh god, like people have no idea, you know. There's just more to tell then, you know. Yeah, yeah even, I see. even even uh, well, talk about the end of it. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel you set a wonderful table and there's just yeah, so much thanks. more you can like there's so much more room in this world to explore and it's just I'm really excited to hear there's going to be more you know it's it's funny though because like so when I did the short story I, I, I came up with Gastown in, in the short story so and people seem to like that you know this idea of this city just floating I want to see Gastown on the screen yes. I want to yeah. see what it looks like well, I mean it just as I was writing the, the so everyone knows Gastown is suspended in the air um, helium is it's got you know balloons, helium balloons. It's built on planks and ships together. It's 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 a floating community in the sky. Yeah, yeah. it just sounds awesome. Yeah. And, but even when I was doing that in the short story, and I went back to it, I was like, oh god, like I, you know, it was like three lines, and I'm like, and maybe this is a deficiency in me as a writer, but I was like, oh god, there needs to be more there, because like in in my mind, I have this very clear of course 
idea of what it what it's like. Um, and that, that's, that's nothing for the reader. Yeah. That's right. And, and that's, that's yeah. one of the challenges of yeah. dealing with the first person narrative yeah. is that you, you, he's not going to walk around. He's not going to be like, like Oh, and then I turned to my right and there was all this <laughs> yeah. stuff. And so I yeah. tried to, you know, I, I tried yeah. to do it with things like, you know, the, the materials that are used and, you know, yeah. whatever. But I, I, I feel like in the second book, as I'm working on it, I feel like there's always more that I can add in. Cause I, I do want the reader to actually have at least some touchstones of, of sounds or yeah. smells right. or, or, or even just like visuals that they can, like. but I also would love to see that on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Know, of course. It's yeah. The whole thing would look great. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, for me, I mean, you, you have this one settlement called apple pie, which I, I, <laughs> I found to be fascinating and I'm, I'm actually in my, in my day job and I'm not, you know, running literary magazine with Mike. I, I actually, I'm a cancer biologist and hmm. I studied, biology and chemistry in school and, and I work at Sloan Kettering and so every day I, I work at a I work at a high level of science you know so to me I could like instantly sympathize and I was totally like pulled into this world about this sort of post-apocalyptic sort of landscape and trying to do science in that environment and like just sort of trying to imagine these scientists who don't even have like one percent of what yeah, what, what I have in terms of high technology and I know how difficult my job is and just trying to imagine them like to sort of living in that environment actually doing real research and I just found it fascinating you know and I just like and then hearing it hearing it through Ben's like perspective him trying to talk about it which is just really interesting you know like I found it really yeah, lovely real, you know? there's a real respect for science that right. comes out and it is is that something that you yourself have I mean I don't know what yeah I mean uh, definitely I, I think you know I think that there is um, there's a you know, like, I, I, obviously science fiction has a healthy respect of science generally, but I think that sometimes there can be a tendency for science to be, you know, like, like I, I didn't want science to be good or bad. I right. wanted science to be a thing that, right. that like, you know, and it, it, in the it book, exists. there are people, yeah. you know, like Miranda's group who are trying to do research to help cure this thing and, right. and they're, they're a force for good in this world. Right. But there are also people out there who are trying to right. do bad Force things, for bad. Yeah. you know, and, right. and, and, um, but, but definitely, I mean, I do have a healthy respect of science. I, I mean, I was, you know, my, my, uh, my background educationally was pre-med for a while and mm-hmm. then I ended up in psychology, but, you know, I, I took organic chemistry and right. my, you know, microbiology and genetics and all that kind of stuff, physics and chemistry and, and, uh, so that's kind of my background too. The the challenging thing is is not knowing enough and having to do the research to be that like you know oh great so they don't have access to you know computer networks right, yeah. or you know this technology and so you know in my in my mind it was these generations of people who had been kind of like in the same way that oral storytelling used to right. pass down things from right. people to people, it was like they were passing down research and data. Right. Yeah. People. Like the keepers of the knowledge, you know? Right. Like, you know. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's always a struggle in this world to figure out like what they can have access to and what they right. can't. Yeah, because, well, you know, it's not impossible to think that somebody could find a working computer and right. they're like, oh my God, we can use all this it stuff. It hit me at one point in particular, I think um, Miranda was going with Templeton, so whatever. Something was happening where I realized, or even when um, um, uh, like Ben is in the hole, they don't have any communication, like no communicators. No, is yeah. that right. I mean, like, I would think yeah. even in that world that might be possible, but you consciously decided 
None of that, or...? I, I mean, I figured radio, like, so the ships communicate by they radio, did. and I, point, I, yeah. I think that, you know, I, I figured people can, you know, easily... Like well, maybe not with Radio Shotgun, but like you know, these <laughs> these days. In this, corner, oh really? Yeah, yeah. Um, people could assemble radios quite easily, and it's, mm-hmm. it's an older technology. So I figured that that could exist. Right. Um, so cell more phones, basic technologies, yeah. right? So cell phones, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I, I was no like, power. that's yeah, straight no, out. Not um, and it, I mean, that's always a challenge. And then you know, once I discovered, once I decided, okay, there's not going to be advanced ways. You know, like walkie talk. I mean, walkie talkies probably could exist yeah. in this world if you had two linked sets right. with, with power to them. Yeah. Um, Power's but, an issue as well. Right. I mean, but, um, you know, it was actually fun to think and thinking in the second book even about like, well, how would they get messages to each right. other when people are flying around for like miles and miles yeah, yeah. and miles? Like, how do they do this? So like, you know, that becomes kind of a world building exercise too. Right. Like, oh, okay. Or even on the island, you know, how do people communicate with each other? You know, maybe you have this messenger culture that's like running messages yeah, back right. and forth, or you have a message board or whatever. It's fantastic. You know, things like that. Yeah, so, so we have things to look forward to. Right. In this yeah, realm, I mean, right? I, I, I hope, you know, like part of the fun for me in writing this is to, to think of just sometimes even just might be one line or two, this interesting aspect to this world that I'm like, oh, right, that's cool. That's how they do this thing, right. you know. And world I, building is, is it's fantastic fun, you know. I mean, as a yeah. mental exercise, you know. I, but I mean, obviously, and like I said, I wanted to keep the first book moving, so right. I didn't have a lot of opportunities to yeah. kind of dump big, you know. This is how, yeah, you know. And then the laundry on on the island works this way <laughs> because it wasn't relevant right. at the time. But right. I, I'm hopefully in the second book, yeah. I'll finally sneak that stuff. But you do the good job of sort of sprinkling it in, like like Ben liked the scientists in the apple pie because group because they had toothpaste you know right, like, right. like yeah. so he was getting like all the needs are so had devolved to such basic things that where can you sleep where can you get food where you can get water where can you get toothpaste you know like so i mean it, 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 as long as you get some of those needs met you'll stick around you know no matter what the consequences you know it's, so. it's funny every time you say apple pie because yeah. i i i put that in the book and it was meant to be a joke you yeah. know in the sense that like and and it continues into the second book these, these right. jokes about names because right. You know, I part of the naming thing was also it's the post-apocalypse. So right. like people can name themselves or name yeah. things whatever they yeah. want. Like there's exactly. no like committee. It's just like right. I want to be called you know right. King Awesome, oh, and right. like that's how yeah. you introduce yourself. <laughs> um, so that's great. So and and I just put that in there just for yeah. fun because I know Ben. Yeah. You know, well, was, anything oh else? my god, like, what, what, it's so stupid. What yeah. else is in there for fun? Uh, uh, I don't. I don't really. Um, like, I gotta think. Um, I love uh, the ship Jared. I think yeah. it's a awesome well. Movie. It's funny you say that because yeah. you know my like my girlfriend hates that name. Really? Oh, really? Just like it's such a stupid name, and I'm oh. like, well, you know, I I feel like it works from from where I was coming from. It's, that was always the name in the short it's story. Heart, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, there's something there. Yeah. It totally works. But um, it's his angel with wings, you know. But you know, like also, there's this. If you if you say cherub to some people, they think of oh you know a little cute cupid baby right. you know right. and and so I think of um, and pumpkins and cherub rock yeah isn't that oh yeah yeah I think yeah. of Icarus yeah. a video game you know yeah, so, yeah. And, like you know but it's not like it's not like badass ship yeah, right. you know like it's it's not yeah but but his ship is more elegant you know right. it, it can move fast there's no See, guns it, on it, it you know like. But, you know? so there's zeppelins yeah, right? yeah. Like, well, right. well so th- th- it's, it's like that I need to see these things yeah, yeah like, I mean it's, the, it's the like right? a lot of the uh, the inspiration or the inspiration for the cherub particularly came from um, prototypes that people were working on because uh, a few mm-hmm. years back 
I started seeing articles about, um, I guess, ship or aerospace right. engineer people making modern airships yeah. because fuel prices were getting so high for, for planes that they were like, even though airships are slower, they're more efficient because right. basically, you know, we just have to fill them up with gas and use a fraction of the, of the fuel to, to ship them across. And it's like, it's basically like a ship, I guess, going across the ocean. They can load them up with cargo. And so then that's when I started thinking like, oh my God, this is actually like a possibility. Um, and so the, the, in my mind, the, the cherub is, it's not like your traditional Zeppelin. It's more of like this, if, if you Google modern airships, you yeah. probably get ideas. It's a bit more flattened. It's a bit more like uh, uh, modern, I suppose. Yeah. But um I but did, yeah, I, I mean, did have a hard time visualizing that at some point. Yeah, I think, and, I think and what I have in my mind is probably. But that's, I mean, yeah. you know, like I, I don't want to paint exactly. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't want to make like my vision the exact vision. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, it, I do think it, it would, it would be a visually like. I, I think it would work in a visual medium. Yeah, the, the, the idea. So, so. There's, there's a good book uh, uh, called The Wind Up Girl. Have you read hmm. that one? And I have. I mean, I know the yeah, book, but I haven't read it. It's uh, by Paolo Bacigalupi, I think Bacigalupi. it is. I'll probably yeah. butchering his name, but same same idea. Like they use dirigibles, and like they but they use springs to sort of drive the engines, and the springs are all wound by human beings. So yeah. the the currency is like human power, and it's all goes down to calories and stuff like that. You right. know, so can you feed this person enough to get them to wind your springs to drive your engines? How you can have transport? And so it's just like. It's a, it's a phenomenal idea to sort of explore, you know, and I, I, I like there's a lot of people out there looking at it, you know, and, um, you know, I, I can't wait to learn more about it. Um, for me, for me, I, I, you know, going back to sort of like this sort of this overlap or this divide between like the digital and like the analog world and yours, I, I love that you sprinkled in like hints of like the former digital world, you know, and I think the the thing that most struck me was when Ben is in the, his airship, the chair, and he puts on his dad's record player um, and he puts on a George Harrison album and has like this moment, you know, and like, you know, and like, you know, like he remembers his dad telling him that records can't fail, you know, as if like they're like one of the few truths in this new, this new reality, you know, and, you know, um, my father had like this extensive record collection and he always talked to me about how um, without music, you know, life wouldn't be fair, you know, and so, I mean, do you think that you included that scene with Ben because you can't imagine a world without music? I mean, is that sort of like a yeah, question I mean, about that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a very musical person, and right. so, you know, I wanted to have some element in there, but yeah. also, I think part of it was that, you know, it's easy, I think it's easy even for me to write Ben off as this kind of, you know, brutish, kind right. of action-only guy, and I wanted him to be more than that you know I wanted him to maybe he's that because he has to be I right mean, it's a reaction yeah. to the world right. he's living right. in and it's nice to see that there's more to him right. and, and to find right. out that there's you know and, and one of the things I've tried to do is is you know like so his father taught him to read but he likes to read you know right. like they're, they're I mean there's obviously elements of Ben that are, that are reflective of me you know of he not. likes to it's read apparent, yeah. he likes music he yeah. likes beer right. you know like these I, are all things are you a fan of westerns I am a fan of Westerns. I mean, I mean Western, and, and like, part of that was my agent, my former agent, who was the one who, who sold this book. Um, he was like, oh, you should, you should throw a little bit of Western stuff in there. And that's, you know, like there, there are elements, I think, in the book of, I mean, you know, obviously, if, you gonna, if you're going to write a novel, you, you have to be engaged with the, the material. And so, right. you know, there are things like 
I, I've always been enamored by airships. So like, oh, airships, of course. You know, I mean, right. that was part of the concept in the beginning. But right. like, you know, there, there's a little bit of Western in there. And there's a little bit of, uh, I, I think, even a, a, a sort of sense of noir in there. There's there's obviously the, the zombie kind of uh, homages mm-hmm. and things right. like that. So, and that's, that's one of the things that I, I tend to do when I write is take a whole bunch of stuff and just throw just it in the catalog. You know? And it, I, I don't, I don't really have any, um, illusions about being like this great pioneer, but mm-hmm. occasionally even like, so I'm part of a writing group and occasionally I'll throw a story out and people will be like, Oh, I haven't seen this before. And it's, it's not like it's anything new. It's just yeah. that I've taken maybe three different things that, Sometimes that if you don't really always enough sounds. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm using a musical analogy. You take enough sounds and put them together it's going to sound, sound novel, you right. know? And, and right, and I mean, I mean, how much music out there is, is, is you know, yeah. these days is awesome, but it's inspired by, like, you know, three different, or, it's a lot, you yeah. know, different places, right. so, yeah. I mean, I found over the years, I, I used to write a lot, and I would just save them in these files, and I just sort of open them up, and I'm like, well, I can take a little bit of this, and put right. it in with this, and put it in, and I got a, a great story I never knew was possible, you know, so... I mean, I just think that there's something exciting about that. You know, you're always writing. You never really know what you're going to do with it until something it all clicks together and you're like, this is amazing. You know, this is fascinating. Back to beer. Yes. There <laughs> is a really wonderful... Um, so, yes, romanticizing, yes, Romanticizing that. Yeah. There's, you know... I've had drinks uh, since that people claim are beer. Uh, where, is it, where is that? Most of my life... Wait, I'm all over this here. Is it a quote from the book? Uh, oh, Yeah. I've had drinks since that people claim were beer, but nothing like we dragged up from that house. For most of my life, I've learned that the ground held only death. Bones and ruins scattered across the wasteland of the past. That day, I realized there was still some life in the ground yet. I mean, these are... It's some... Yeah, I... You know, it's it's some years back, I... It's funny, because I... When I was a teenager, I grew up drinking beer. Where? Sorry, in Where? Jersey. In Jersey, yeah. In New Jersey. Um... Beer was like a, a means to an end, and it always tasted horrible yeah. to me. Yeah, no, you were, you were just putting it down. As it was like Coors head. Light because yeah. it would go down easily. Right. And then it wasn't until I moved to New York that I suddenly was like, oh, there's this other beer was Yeah, it was just starting to come well. about. Yeah. And as soon as I kind of discovered craft beer, I was like, oh, this is what I like. You know, and I, like. I do like, I mean, I, I tend to have one of those brains that attracts me to learning about stuff like mm-hmm. I you know I also like wine and part of the what attracted me to wine aside from the fact that I enjoy drinking it is is learning that you know the the field and learning you know the different grapes and how yeah. they work and the styles and and, 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 and be, right but beer was like a way more approachable form of that you know it tasted good but also like you know there's so many breweries now that, that try different things and there's so many like different flavor profiles and um and so, like, I mean, anyone who knows me knows that, like, you know, beer is a constant yeah. like, thing of ex- exploration and fun in my life. Um, and so when I was writing the book, I, I just felt like, you know, it, it would have been easy to do wine maybe, but I thought, yeah. you know... Now, I'm there's even a here. point, that, uh, there's a, a, a sentence or so where he's, like, kind of trying to, like, figure out the taste in his mouth. He's enjoying it. And, 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 they all, they all, and I realize I'm in the right place because this place isn't swinging hooch. <laughs> right, right, right. This place has beer, yeah. And that was also an interesting thing you know, because... What's that line? I'm sorry, so I interrupt you. About a bar popping up? We, we oh, yeah, you had, you had this great line in the book where it's uh, whether you're talking the clean or the sick, which is what we use the preface as like before the disease and after the disease, 
getting the people together in a bar will pop up. Right. I mean, awesome. it's, it's a such line. a great line, you know, and it's so true though. I mean, like, you know, like you got people, you're going to get beer, you know? Well, I, I mean, that was also like part of the, again, the, the challenge in writing in this kind of imaginary world yeah. is what would they have access to? Right. And then I started thinking like, well, the ancient Egyptians were making beer, yes. you know? So it's not, yes. the technology is not beyond thousands of years. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, well, I assume somebody out there can grow some hops or, you know, right. or they can grow it someplace. Right. And the ground's and, obviously still fertile. And, right. And, yeah. And, and, and actually it's, yeah. it's way more fertile now yeah, than you would think. Yeah. Right. Water I mean, wasn't a problem in, in, in the world that you created. Yeah. I so water game. Wildlife, I mean, it was right. kind of like the, the, what I went with is that, you know, as soon as this kind of knocked out civilization, the natural world kind of so bounded back. Right, yeah. You know, like yeah, animals story. came back. You mentioned that at some point. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. vegetation reclaiming the houses. You weren't getting a chance know, like, to ruin it anymore. Right. right. Yeah. And and I think, I mean, that that that's actually something I don't think I did enough of is, yeah. is that the, the reality would be that, right. you know, there would be green stuff on it. Right. Everything. Right. Yeah. Like, and I, I've even gone back and watched some post-apocalyptic movies like 12 Monkeys and whatever since and like, that's something that they are always, you know, very keen to show is that, you know, or like, uh, I Am Legend, you know, the right. movie where, like, you right. see the deer... Yeah, running, running down, right. down, right. down. Right, exactly. Right. And, and I mean, you know, that that is, I think, the reality. The fact that we live in a very, at least in New York, sterile world a lot of the time is just because it doesn't get a chance to come back, but, right. like, it would in, in, a, in a second. Yeah, you can't stop nature, yeah. Right. But, um, you know, I think that... So I wasn't really concerned about the, the kind of... Like, I mean, part of it is... The world I set up is that you can grow crops very easily if you have the sources. The question, the, you know, the, the question was really, can you survive while you're yeah. growing the crops? It's something not something to bite your face your off yeah. while you're trying to <laughs> right. grow your. You there's times where you can't even take a piss without right. worrying. Well, that right. you know, it, it's it's funny because that's the paranoia. You, I, you set up the world, and then I, you know, like the way I write is so I know what the world is sort of like, and then. I try to put myself in Ben's head and I'm like, oh God, he needs to take a piss. And then like, oh my God, what would I be doing? I'd be like, you know, like, uh, cause, cause you, you don't want to just, it's, you think of peeing as a very simple task, but it's a vulnerable moment. Right. Like if you're out in the middle of nowhere with like hungry creatures all Mm -hmm. around you, like maybe you're thinking a lot more about it than than normal. I can't tell you the number of horror and sci-fi movies where a guy dies while he's taking a piss. I mean, like it just, it just happens. That's the moment when they get you, you know? The first one that jumps in my head is snakes on a plane. Like it actually, like they, they just go for it. So um, yeah, I know, but it was the first thing that popped. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, but the, the beer thing, I just, I really, I mean, I, 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 I wanted to put it in right. my first book. I wanted right. to be like, yeah. part you did a great job. I mean, you ran the whole gambit. I mean, you saw like, you gave us like the rust colored rock gut, like the bottom of the barrel stuff. You gave us the moonshine, you know, you gave us the beer and the more established but settlements, I you know, like. I figure that if you are living in this kind of yeah. crazy, horrible world. Right. You're gonna want to get drunk yes. a lot, you know, and, it, and, and so like if you have like even a bottle of something bottle good, and you, you probably could trade that for a lot of stuff because oh, yeah. somebody would be like, I want that. Yeah, and you imagine you... how the, the bars stay open all the time because right. you know why would you not want to barter the whole time? To make That's money, like, yeah, yeah. right. I I, I kind of saw um, 
the uh, the bar, what was it, the Frothy Brew? The Frothy Brew. In one of the more civilized settlements that you have in your book, and um, they only serve light and dark. And just, immediately, I just thought about Mick Sorley's Ale House. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's and honestly I was what like, I was thinking I, about, know, too. I, I just, like, I had, a, I had many nights there where it's just light or dark, you know? I just sort of just... Are you, like, are you just channeling McSorley's in the... I, that, that was the inspiration. Yeah. I, I was thinking that, you know, they're not going to be saying, like, we have this I, you know, IPA <laughs> and we have this, you know, export Pilsner. stout or, you know, Pilsner. Pilsner. So, so I yeah. figured, you know, they're, they're doing what the best that they yeah. can, but, like, yeah. you know, they're basically saying one of these two things, but right. we're, we're, we made them pretty well. So, right, right. Um, I don't and, need to move straight from beer to cussing to... Apply that you know anything lowbrow about the book, but I love your use of cussing. Really, like especially the word I fuck. I, <laughs> I, I I use swears maybe too much right. when I'm writing, but I I find them so impactful. They don't always Me have too. to be crude, and uh, I just I don't have to, I don't even have a question here. I'm just saying bravo. It thank you, like, thank you. Because it's, it's funny well. you you bring that up because um, well it's for two reasons. One is recently there was that I don't know if you guys saw there was a. a was it Clean Read was the name of the app? It was like oh, this so app where, where, where we take out all the swear words <laughs> yeah, and replace right. them with like, you what know, freak instead yeah. of fuck or whatever. Yeah, the, um, album the, also, I wasn't sure if we were able to say swear words on yeah, this yeah, or words. what you wanted. But um, I recently read a review where somebody was like, it's way too much cursing and I see that as a form of like, you know, immature writing That's or whatever. That's the thing, it, it doesn't really have hands. to be looked at as, as something just cruel. Like, maybe it's, your character's it's, immature. Well, I also, oh, so that too, but I, I feel like world. if that you, right, if you're in this world, like, and, and that's an interesting thing too about the language is that you know, I could have gone away where I made up my own swears and my own language sure. and all this kind of stuff because I think there is enough time that then that would have changed but I want, right. part of, I wanted to be a quick read and quick, you know, like I said, like, people to be able to just kind of go through it yeah. and that just puts a big obstacle you know because then you're stopped and you're like whoa you're I gotta sudden, figure this out yeah. and so you know I, I do think that there's like you can read fantasy these days where they just talk colloquially and, right. and it's meant to just I don't think you're meant to think oh wow they talk like modern English I think you're meant to think that this is a translation that right. you can understand yeah, and right. because you don't speak you know whatever obscure name language that they, they have um, so but but yeah I mean I, I can't I couldn't I don't think I could write this especially in the first person and not have cursing in it right. you know it's like also like that that's one of the things I always find disingenuous about television because I know on, on network television you can't curse a lot but you know there are situations where somebody would be, should be like fuck yeah, you know and they don't they don't and you it, it, it all just, of a you know, affects the authenticity right there because right because uh, because you think or you know like or they get caught you know cut off before I, I don't yeah. know there's something about I feel like yeah they have to shape their story and and cursing that. is a character thing you know like it, it illuminates the character you yeah know, I like, think Disney is just declared that they were going to take out smoking of all their movies you know really? all their conglomerates whatever right. That's another character thing. Right. You know, you put it in there to kind of define the, yeah. the type of person. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, can you imagine, like, a Scorsese movie without somebody uh, smoking something? Uh, you know, like, it just... Uh, um, what kind of movie that would be? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's... Uh, well, you are about to experience... They talk about the Colbert bump or the John Stewart bump when an author goes on saying, you're lucky you're going to get the cross-the-margin bump. <laughs> so watch, watch what your novel does No, now. that would be... That would be <laughs> You know, it's it's fun because you know y- you tend to do a lot of promo right up front, and right. then 
it's like within a few months it's like oh this novel's dead and like no one's reading it it just feels like no one's reading because everyone tends to read it in the beginning and get the feedback in the beginning um, and like I said, I'm working on the second one, but like, that's not going to be out till November. So they, there's this big, like, how far are you into it? I need to turn it in this weekend. Oh, so, wow. Uh, uh, oh, well, thank you for coming. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, yes, no, it's, 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 there's been a little bit of a delay because yeah. of personal family stuff. Sure, sure. But like, like, um, it's, happens. yeah, but, but it's, uh, I mean, the shape is there. The, 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 the weird thing about second novels is, and I hope I'm not going too long, but like, no, uh, good. it's, it's easier to come up with a story because you've developed, you've basically laid out the framework so in the first book. Of what's going right. You know, the characters, yeah. you know, the, the world and, and you know, I, I'd worked out like, okay, the second book's going to be him. This place, this place, this is going to happen. And then there's this false idea. Like, I know where, oh, I know what I'm doing. It's going to yeah. be easy to sit down and do it. And then, you know, there's, you know, not only the details of like, oh, how does this actually happen? But then just filling in those gaps can, can be a, a process on its own. Yeah. So um, so anyway, I hope it turns out the way I want it to I, uh, turn out. So. I really can't wait, especially after rereading. Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah, so so the, the, I've seen people go both ways, but I, I saw a bunch of people who were like unhappy at the way the first one ended because they were like oh no there's gotta be a second book right. so like I mean I'm glad I get to do that but yeah. um did you feel like it was cliffhangery at the end a little bit yeah a little bit I mean I I, I want more right. so I was happy with it but um it was it, yes it was very cliffhanger at the end I, I found that it was wrapped up nicely and I was like this is perfectly poised to be another book you know but I also found maybe it's my personality when you, when you were writing it yeah. though you were thinking about I mean it. I right. wanted I wanted to write another right. book but but I also I mean it, it was a tricky thing because I didn't I wanted to give it an ending you know I wanted right. to have I, I think you can say that Ben at least has a journey in the first yeah. book yeah. Um, and he comes around to a certain place but you know I, I had other story and uh, the, the one thing I didn't want to do is write a book and have it be like and at the end they cured everything yeah, right. everyone was happy everyone was happy yeah I, I'm, I'm glad to do that you know which is great I, I think my personality I would have been okay with it stopping there because I feel like alright I'm satisfied you know and I'm happy and you know like everything that's in the book has been sort of to, to a certain extent you know um, explored you know and I, I like where it's gone you know but would you, if you gave me more would I read it of course I would you know why the hell not you know I so can't wait um, but uh, thank you for, seriously thank you for coming by everyone out there yeah uh, Falling Sky go get it it's awesome uh, thanks for coming by and then really begin to look it. out for uh, your sequel yes what's um, called Rising Tide Rising, Rising Tide. Tide fantastic awesome. fantastic thank you That's guys great. for having me yeah, thank you so fun. much it's been a pleasure and now as promised to conclude our podcast Chris Thompson's The Middle Drawer Max stood staring off blankly at the featureless office wall. It was somehow gray, if white could be gray, robbed of its life by the stale glow of the overhead fluorescent lights. Mac rubbed his tired eyes. It was late. Last call at the bar late, and everyone else in the office had already gone home. You fool, Mac thought. A week off for holiday break, and here you are making copies instead of heading over to the Royal Palms for drinks and trying to get that red-headed bartender to kiss you? Mac sighed and loaded another stack of the SPT reports into the photocopier tray. They had to be filed in triplicate, one copy set to the home office in Kansas City, 
one copy left to stay here, and the final copy to be sent out to the individual clients. This latest stack comprised all the West Coast clients, mainly wealthy California and Arizona retirees. California, Mac thought, closing his eyes and imagining sunny beaches, crashing waves of surf and fish tacos. One day I'll go there. The photocopier released a protesting whine as the fresh stack of SPT reports passed heavily over its aging scanner bed. Mac wished his tight-fisted boss, Brad, had taken his advice and bought the office a new photocopier last year. Instead, he had given all the senior-level managers bonuses and taken them out for dry-age steaks. Mac adored dry-age steaks, but he loved the idea of, of working photocopier even more. The rickety machine beeped momentarily as if in agreement with Mac's lament before returning to its characteristic sequence of hums and groans. Mac stared down at the catch tray as it spit out copy after copy of the mind-numbing SPT reports. He found the machine's plaintive whine, a perfect encapsulation of how he currently felt. Mac was about to stretch his aching back, break his tether to the struggling machine, and take a stroll around the office when a sudden clanging noise, like a wrench striking a pipe, startled him. Glaring down at the photocopier, Mac watched in irritation as the red paper jam error message blinked on and off. Damn it, Mac swore. He set his lukewarm cup of instant coffee atop the photocopier and bent down to peer inside its warm, shattered innards. As he bent down, his back sent a protesting ripple of spasms up his spine. I need to get a massage, Mac thought for the tenth time that day, even though he knew he never would. The thought functioned more as a security blanket for his woes than an actual call to action. It was a broken mantra, and he leaned on it daily. Reaching out with his left hand, Mac felt around inside the photocopier until he found the handle for the toner. With a grunt, he pulled the rigid block of plastic free and stuck his slender fingers into the paper advance tray behind it. Like a multi-headed bloodhound, his fingers sniffed out the source of the jam, passing in a wide arc across the darkened depths of the paper feed tray. Unable to locate the offending piece of paper, Mac felt like a ham-handed surgeon as he shoved all the pieces of the decrepit photocopier back together again. He stood up and hit the photocopier's power button in an attempt to reset the jam and waited for the machine's high-pitched startup whine. Instead, the machine sat idle and dark, a dense block of wasted inertia and metal. Angrily, Max stabbed at the power button with his right index finger, hammering at its round plastic form until it flew off of the machine, arcing through the air and bounding into the shadows beneath a nearby desk. Just great, Mac exclaimed with an abrupt surge of anger pounding the top of the photocopier with his balled-up fists. The force of his assault toppled his styrofoam cup of coffee, its black-brown contents spilling across the beige plastic of the photocopier's top. Mac watched in slow-motion horror as the liquid fell, like a shadowy, caffeinated waterfall, over the photocopier's edge, heading towards the catch tray where the still-warm copies of the SPT reports lay. As Mac watched the liquid drip downward, he noticed that the top page in the catch tray didn't look like an SPT report. It was on an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, but that was where the similarity ended. Instead of lines of obscure, numerical-laden text and figures, the stark white paper had a large black circle covering the entirety of its center. And Max Coffee, rather than pouring down the catch tray to soak the photocopied SPT reports below, it gurgled softly like water draining down a sink as it flowed across the white expanse of paper, disappearing over the edge of the black circle into the darkness that made up its form. What the hell? Mac thought, cocking his head slightly to absorb the curious new development. He took the strange piece of paper from the top of the photocopier's catch tray and held it up before him. He turned the paper around in his outstretched hand, 
taking in both its sides. The back of the page was blank, and to him it merely appeared to be an unremarkable piece of paper with a black circle on one side. Mac pulled free the bite-marked pencil he kept behind his ear and brought its pointed tip up to the circle's center. He paused for a moment as a wave of uneasiness washed over him. His curiosity swiftly dissipated its surging effect, though. Like a feather falling through the air, Mac pushed the pencil effortlessly through the center of the black hole. Turning the page slightly, he looked to see if the pencil had come out on the other side. It hadn't. Hot damn, Mac thought. As he stared wide-eyed at the pencil disappearing through the paper, Mac's stomach rumbled, reminding him of its displeasure with his eating habits. He had worked through dinner again. Glancing to his left, Mac saw Carol's tidy desk with his neatly arranged trinkets and various photos of her pet chihuahua, Rex. Carol was his boss's secretary. She was portly and smelled of rose perfume and kept a cachet of cookies and sweets locked in the top drawer of her desk. She was also mean and had recently gotten his only friend in the office, Gene, fired. Bingo, Mac thought, his tongue flicking out momentarily to wet his dry lips. Placing the pencil back behind his ear, Mac walked over to Carol's desk. Like a plow clearing a street of snow, he swung his arm across its cluttered top, emptying an area directly above the top drawer of its tacky figurines. Pulling a length of invisible tape from Carol's bright pink dispenser, Mac affixed the paper down to the top of the desk. He hovered his fingers for a moment in quiet hesitation above the black circle as he steeled his resolve. Then he thrust his hand through the page up to his wrist. Mac's hand instantly felt electrified, like it was plugged into an outlet in the wall. Stinging waves of warmth radiated up his arm as he felt around inside the drawer. Almost immediately, his hands felt the unmistakable wrapper of a candy bar, and clutching like a claw at his prize, Mac pulled his hand free at the black circle to reveal the three musketeers. Yes, Mac exclaimed, a look of intense satisfaction spreading across his face as he unwrapped the candy bar's silver wrapper. He bit into its soft, chocolatey nougat, closing his eyes and making a gentle mmm sound as he devoured the sweet confection in several bliss-filled bites. What else can I do, Mac thought as he looked around the office. It was filled with several unremarkable rows of cubicles. There were a few larger offices along the walls, mostly for the more senior managers with three-letter names like Jim and Pam and Don. But there was also a big corner window office where his boss Brad worked. Mac pulled a piece of paper up from Carol's desk and walked over to the closest row of cubicles. He stopped in front of Yuki's desk. She was from South Korea and was doing an internship at the company for the fall semester. She was pretty, and Mac hadn't gotten up the nerve to tell her that yet. So he reached down and grabbed a yellow post-it note and a black magic marker from her desk and wrote on it in big black letters, I think you are pretty, Mac. He turned around and taped the piece of paper with the black hole to the small metal locker in Yuki's cubicle where she kept her personal belongings. Still holding the post-it note, he put his hand through the black hole and into the shallow locker. Barely in up to his elbow, Mac found the cool metal at the back of the locker and with his thumb and forefinger affixed the post-it note to the back of its wall. That'll get her attention, Mac thought. I bet she'll wonder how I did that. Flushed with an excitement born of mischief and a break from the routine, Mac's gaze turned to his boss's office. Brad was hyper-protective of his personal office, and he took few meetings there. He preferred to discuss things out in the open, or if when privacy was absolutely necessary, he used one of the manager's offices that lined the outer walls. Mac had always wanted to know what it felt like to stand inside Brad's office, and he was curious how that fancy leather chair behind his desk with the high sides like a throne felt to sit in. He also wanted to know what Brad kept in that giant filing cabinet he had across from his desk, the one with the extra-wide drawers that a person could easily sleep in. Everyone in the office wanted to know the answer to that question, actually. 
Max strode briskly across the office space to Brad's door. Across his front, written in capitalized gold script, were his name and title, Brad Cummings, District Supervisor. Below that, in small letters, just as striking, were the words, Keep Out. Mac taped the piece of paper beside the locked door handle and reached his arm through the door. Bending his hand and elbow upwards, he unlocked the door's deadbolt and opened the handle from the inside. As the door swung inward, Mac was met by the rich aroma of sandalwood and something else that Mac couldn't quite place. It reminded him of his childhood growing up in Brooklyn, like warm pavement after it had rained, only sweeter. As he stepped into Brad's office, the motion sensors activated the overhead lights and Mac froze. It was instinctual, born of the knowledge that he was trespassing on what his boss considered sacred ground. But Mac knew no one would be back until the following Monday, so he continued onward. Brad's desk and high back leather chair stood before Mac, tantalizing him with their seductive power. But Mac was more interested in the unremarkable filing cabinet. It seemed out of place in an office as well-appointed and modern-looking as Brad's. Every morning, when his boss came into work, he adhered to a strict routine, and the beginning of that routine was always the same. Brad would cross the open expanse of the office space, exchanging a few minor pleasantries with those whom he liked and a furrowed brow to those he didn't. And then he would open his office door and head straight to the extra-wide filing cabinet. Pulling out a keychain that jingled and betrayed his presence a few seconds before he walked into any room, his boss would unlock the middle, waist-high drawer of the cabinet and just stare down into it for at least 10 minutes. He did this every day, for as long as anyone who worked at the office could remember. Mac and his office mates were insanely curious as to what was in the drawer, but no one had ever approached it close enough to peer inside. Furthermore, Brad would not even remotely discuss the topic when people tried to steer the conversation its way. It was office rumor that when Brad pulled the drawer open, a light would shine up and illuminate the surrounding metal with a warm, even glow. But no one had been able to definitely figure out why. Why would you have a light in a filing cabinet drawer? And more importantly, why would you stare at it every morning to start your workday? Mac pondered these questions for the thousandth time as he crossed the office floor, mirroring the collective curiosity of his office mates. As he stood before the filing cabinet, he noticed that it wasn't just a nondescript wall unit made of aluminum and steel. Seemingly etched into its silver-green metal was a barely visible complex pattern of repeated golden stars, like the Middle Eastern geometric art he had seen recently at his dentist's office in a back issue of National Geographic magazine. Mac ran his fingertips over the fine repeated pattern, but the metal was smooth to the touch, like the pattern was a part of the metal, as opposed to being added to it after. It was a curious artistic flair for something as simple as an office filing cabinet, and Mac chalked it up to Brad's exquisite taste and his desire to make even a filing cabinet seem luxurious. Raising the piece of paper to his waist, Mac taped it to the center of the middle drawer. The height of the black hole would make it a simple exercise to reach his arm inside and take a feel around the cabinet. The first time Mac pulled his hand free of the middle drawer, he held in his hand a soft purple velvet pouch. Upon opening it, he found it to be filled with what looked like ancient golden coins. The second time he pulled his hand free of the drawer, he cradled in his palm a delicate jewel-encrusted egg like he had seen in museums. It was purple and blue with thin ribbons of silver and gold that seemed as if they were woven from silken thread. The third time he pulled his hand free, he held out a suddenly cut yellow diamond the size of a golf ball. As he held it up to the fluorescent lights, it sparkled and shone, radiating the office's harsh fluorescence into a spectrum of colors that dazzled Mac's eyes. He thought it was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen. Mac's head swum with the possibilities these newfound riches could afford him if he were to just take them all and walk away. He would never have to work again. He could leave today, 
hop on a plane, and live out comfortably the rest of his days in opulence and wealth. He could cash these treasures in and maybe have enough money to buy the company he worked for and promptly fire Carol and Brad. Or better yet, he could hire them back once they came groveling for their jobs and stick them on SPT report photocopying duties forever. Yeah, that was what I'll do, Brad thought. I'll make myself company president, hire good old Gene back and make him district supervisor instead of Brad. Then I'll make Yuki my senior VP, tell the news over our first date, give her an expensive diamond ring and ask her to marry me right then and there. Daydreaming on the future was a fun exercise for Mac, but after running out of ideas, he soon grew tired of it. He wasn't a terribly imaginative person, but what he lacked in imagination, he more than made up for in spirit and resolve. So on the fourth time Mac put his arm through the black hole, his strengths were put forward to the test. He hadn't pulled out any riches or treasures this time, but instead his hand had settled around a pitted, dense block of cold metal that no matter how hard he tried, he could not budge. Mac wasn't a strong person, but he wasn't particularly weak either. He went to the gym a few times a week and went for a run at the work most days. So when he couldn't budge the block of metal, he became obsessed with the reason why. He had remembered reading the other day that a bar of gold weighed in at about 27 pounds. That was a good delivery bar, and with the price of gold currently skyrocketing, Mac became transfixed on the idea that that was, was what was inside. Since he couldn't move the block with one hand, Mac reached his other arm into the black hole as well. With two hands firmly grasping the block of metal, Mac still could not pull it free. It must be stuck or tied down, Mac thought, and squatting down to put the black hole at eye level, he stuck his head fully into the drawer. Now in up to his shoulders, he grasped the metal bar in the inky darkness with his two hands and firmly pulled with all his might. The bar began to shift slightly, and excited, Mac planted his feet wider and pushed himself further into the drawer. Wrapping his hands tighter around the metal bar, Mac readied himself to pull on it, but a loud noise like a slamming door suddenly caused him to lose his footing, pitching his entire frame fully through the black hole into the filing cabinet drawer. In an instant, Mac was engulfed in blackness, the dense bar of metal forgotten. Panicking, he tried to push his legs back out of the drawer, but could not find the opening created by the black hole. Frantically, he swung his legs around the drawer's metal front, searching out the opening, but to no avail. He managed to turn himself around, so he lay parallel with the drawer's length, his face facing the front of the drawer. With his two hands, he frantically searched around in the darkness, but the hole created by the black hole but he could not make it out. It was gone. The drawer was smooth and featureless, and as he searched for a way out, he became overcome with a sense of anxiety and fear. He was stuck. There was no way out. The filing cabinet drawer was sturdy and sound, and no matter how much he pounded and banged at its sides, it wouldn't budge. The long holiday break had arrived, and it wouldn't be for another nine days that the office would be open once again. I'm doomed, Max thought, as he pounded furiously at the drawer. Five days later, the main glass-walled doors for the office opened with a futuristic swish, and the holiday cleaning crew filed in. They were all similarly dressed in beige coveralls, with a seven-pointed star with a blue eye in its center on their backs. Below it were the words, Out of This World Cleaners, and as they filed into the office, one of the men handed out plastic four-gallon buckets full of cleaning supplies and rags to each man. They spoke rapidly in Spanish, laughing and carrying on as they spread about the place. They put on their headphones turned on their vacuum cleaners and floor polishers, and went about their specific jobs. If they had paused for a moment before getting straight to work, they might have heard a faint pounding sound coming from the darkened corner office. And had they come to investigate, they might have found the white piece of paper with the black hole in its middle, lying on the floor below the filing cabinet where it fell. But they did not, and soon they were done with their reading, collecting their wares and hauling out transparent bags of trash and recycling as they made their way onto the next room, and ultimately to the Royal Palms, where they celebrate the holiday over drinks 
and take turns trying to get the red-headed bartender to give out a kiss. It wouldn't be for at least another four days that the office would again be teeming with the energies of the day-to-day rhythms of the business day. By that time, however, the odds were pretty high that Mac would surely be dead. Across the margins. Across the margins.